You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I'm really excited that we can once again gather. Uh, for those that are able to gather in person, for those that are able to gather online, we're just grateful that we can gather to, together around God's Word uh, once again. We're excited for those that are visiting with us today. We'd love to have the chance to fellowship with you and uh, speak to you and share with you more about our church afterwards. We'll have people inside, outside, um, but we'd love the chance to get to, to connect with you before you leave um, today. If you haven't been with us, we have been working through the Minor Prophets over the past couple of weeks. Prior to that, we spent some time going through a series on what it means to be created in the image of God. And what we're seeing is that that, that understanding of what Genesis has to say about being created in God's image has so much to do with the message of the Minor Prophets. God is using these individual prophets to address issues both amongst his people with Israel and Judah, but then also some of the surrounding nations and how they were doing a poor job of reflecting his image and honoring uh, the image of of himself in in the other people around them. And so uh, what we saw in our Image of God series is that we're all created in the image of God, which gives us great value gives us great purpose, but it also dictates how we're to treat other people, uh, that we're to treat other people right and equal and just. Um, and so the minor prophets are helping correct some of those issues that they, they would see in society where people weren't being treated uh, the ways that they should have been treated. Okay, And so we saw several weeks ago in the book of Hosea uh, just the, the unconditional love of God and how he loves us Uh, despite our unfaithfulness to him. We see that modeled through the story of Hosea, right? God calls Hosea to marry this unfaithful woman, Gomer, and through their relationship, we're able to see the parallels between God and his relationship to his people. Then we saw uh, the book of Joel and how uh, God had brought some small, what we call days of the Lord upon the people for their sin. These days where he would step into human history and he would deal with sin and he would rescue his people. Um, and so he had brought this locust plague upon the people of Israel, and uh, it was a warning sign for greater punishment to come if they didn't get their lives right. And so we talked about how sometimes God disrupts our circumstances to get our attention so that we can make changes and make corrections. And so it was a very timely message in light of what we're dealing with today, where obviously a all of our circumstances are being disrupted by the coronavirus, and it gives us great reason to pause and reflect and to try to figure out what God may be speaking to us about and how we may need to make changes in our own life. Then we saw in the book of Amos um, that God cares uh, about people who are mistreated specifically, um, that as God's image bears, we're to mirror his character, and we're to be known for righteousness and for justice. We're to be known for people who uphold concepts of what is right And we are to help correct things when they stop being right. And we're to bring justice to situations. And so uh, we talked about what that meant. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at what Jonah had to say to us. And Jonah being a book where oftentimes it's misunderstood uh, and presented sometimes as a guy who was fearful about being a missionary. Um, and, And that's true. He was fearful about being a missionary, but not for the reasons that we think of. He wasn't fearful about leaving his family behind. He wasn't fearful about going to a different country. He was fearful that he would go to the people of Nineveh and God would save them, which, which sounds crazy to think that a missionary would be fearful that he would have a message of the gospel that people would respond to and get saved from, right? But we saw that when we looked at deeper, deeper into Jonah's heart, Jonah hated the people that God had called him to go tell the gospel to. Uh, Jonah hated these people and didn't want them to be saved. 
Um, And it talks about how Jonah knows that God is merciful, knows that God is gracious, and yet he did not want him to be a merciful and gracious God towards these people. Certainly wanted it for himself, but did not want it for the people that he judged to be not worthy of God's mercy, not worthy of God's grace. And so um, that brings us now to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, It's a book that is spoken to uh, a group of people who are not believers. It's spoken to people outside of Israel. It's a, uh, an oracle from God uh, of judgment against a group of people for how they have treated his people. Um, and so we'll see uh, the message of Obadiah this morning. Our summary sentence for today is, because God is fiercely opposed to those who are prideful and those who oppress his people, he expects us to demonstrate humility in our interaction with others by aiding rather than attacking or benefiting from those in need. Because God is fiercely opposed to those who are prideful and those who oppress his people. And we're going to see those are the types of people that God considers his enemies, those who are prideful, those who set themselves up to a lofty position that is not warranted, someone who uh, potentially begins to even view themselves as God. And we see people in Scripture that do that. Nebuchadnezzar is one who's kind of guilty of that, and God has to bring him back down to earth and has to humble him. God is fiercely opposed towards those who are prideful and towards those who oppress his people. Um, and because that's the type of God that we serve, it, it, it has implications for how we're to live our life. We are to demonstrate humility in our interaction with others, and we do that by aiding other people rather than attacking them or benefiting from them when they are in need. For our kids, God hates pride and expects us to help rather than hurt other people. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Obadiah. I'm going to read for us the entire book because it's only 21 verses. And we'll kind of see this message, uh, give you a a foundation to kind of understand what's going on here, and then give you some points of application. So in Obadiah, verse 1, it says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, Edom is uh, the people group that comes from Esau. So quick history background, you've got uh, Abraham and Sarah, right, who have Isaac. Then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Eventually, those two brothers are going to experience conflict over the birthright. And you remember, Jacob deceives Esau um, into kind of forfeiting it, giving it up uh, for a pot of stew. Later on in life, when Isaac is ready to bless, uh, Jacob deceives his father and tricks him into thinking that he's Esau. That leads into all kinds of turmoil for years and years and years later, right? Jacob is eventually renamed Israel. Esau begins to be known as Edom, and so the people that come from Esau are known as the Edomites, okay? So God is speaking to this group of people uh, living in Edom. It says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. 
Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. (coughs) For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Seraphad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that God does fiercely oppose the proud. He fiercely opposes those who oppress his people. Um, and the expectation that's kind of intertwined into this book is that we're to be people of humility. We're to be people who aid other people rather than attacking them or benefiting from their demise. Okay, and so we're going to see that together today. I told you it's the shortest book in the Old Testament it's written by uh, someone identifying as Obadiah, uh, which could be a literal name. It could be simply uh, an expression because the name means servant of Yahweh. And so we don't have any background information. There's multiple Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. We don't have any uh, evidence to, to tie this book to one of those specifically. So we don't know anything really beyond that about the author. Uh, we do know it's written to these non-believers, these Edomites, these descendants of Esau, who would have been individuals with little to no understanding of God. Uh, So he's speaking to them maybe for the first time about who he is. Um, And so this book is classified or characterized as a book about the day of the Lord on Edom. This is God's judgment day on this people group for how they have treated uh, those around them. And what it is addressing is this ongoing feud that I highlighted for you between Jacob and Esau. Uh, this, um, This feud that started between two brothers that continued as the two brothers turned into two nations. Um, it, it really starts uh, once again. So you'll remember uh, Jacob takes his people um, down to Egypt, and that's where the nation of Israel kind of grows into a nation, right? And so for 400 plus years, they're in Egypt, and they begin to multiply to the point that they become a threat to the Egyptians. <clears throat> and then once God expels them from Egypt through the plagues, they're heading out, They're journeying to the promised land, and they encounter the people of Edom. It says in Numbers chapter 20, 
And you kind of get a picture here of how the Edomites viewed the Israelites. Numbers chapter 20, verse 14. It says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. Right? So Moses draws upon this remembrance that, hey, we're family. Right? We're family. We're two nations, but we're family. He says, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt And we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. All right, so Moses says, remember who we are. We're your family. We've we've gone through some tough times. We've gone through some really tough times here. Verse 17, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. Right? So he says, we're not here to take anything from you. We're not here to benefit from your land. We just need to pass through it. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. He says, we're not going to spend any unnecessary time here. Right? We're going to get through this area. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. The people of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. And let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Into chapter 21 of Numbers, verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And this is, this, is a, this is a sad part of this verse. It says, and the people became impatient on the way. Now, it's not Edom's fault that the Israelites became impatient, but they contributed to the circumstances that led to their impatience because it took longer, the route took longer because they prohibited them from passing through their area, right? So Edom is, is showing itself to be anti-Israel, showing himself to be anti-God's people. They're family. They should be taking care of each other. They should remember that connection, and yet they're rejecting it. Even though God has blessed Edom, despite the fact that they're not part of the chosen line, they reject God, they reject his people, and they, they, they show themselves to be adversaries here. Despite all that, despite how Edom is treating Israel, God gives instructions to Israel for how they're to treat Edom. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. Now, we serve a God who knows everything, right? We serve a God who, who knows the future, who has planned the future. So when he gives us instructions in the present day, he gives instructions in light of what he knows is coming, right? So he knows, God knows that the, the book of Obadiah will be written years later. He knows that Edom is going to be guilty of the sins that we're going to talk about today. And yet, look at the instructions that he gives to Israel about how they're to treat Edom. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Right? God is giving them instructions. He says, you're not to hate these people. You're not to mistreat these people. I don't care if they're Edomites. I don't care if they're Egyptians. You're not to mistreat them. Why is that the case? Because it goes back to our understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God, right? We mistreat people when we abuse our own perspective about being created in God's image. When we start to think of ourselves too highly, that's when we feel empowered to mistreat other people. 
And that's what happens with the Edomites here. In this passage, God highlights their pride. They had begun to think too highly of themselves and it had started to shape how they treated others. They treated others as lesser people, as lesser individuals, right? And so we have to guard ourselves and protect ourselves from a similar mindset. This book is specifically addressing two things that Edom is guilty of. One, they are guilty of, and this is an outflowing of their pride, they're guilty of being violent towards God's people. And we're gonna see how they contributed when this attack takes place on Judah and Jerusalem the, the, the Edomites participated in it. But secondly, they, they did nothing to help their brother when they were attacked. So God highlights the fact that they participate in the violence and they failed to provide aid when their brother needed it most. Instead of coming to the rescue, instead of coming to help, they sat back in compliance and said, oh, that's too bad for you guys. Too bad for y'all that you're being attacked. Too bad for y'all that you're being um, sieged and that your, your cities are falling. Um, in fact, we see that Edom benefits from this, right? They come in and they start to take and they start to gather the plunder of what's left behind. And so God highlights these sins and, and he's going to address these sins because they've participated in the violence. They've complied with the violence towards his people. It's not totally clear which time of attack is being talked about here. A lot of commentators believe um, that it falls with uh, Jerusalem falling to the Arabs and the Philistines. That was back in eight, uh, 853 to 850, 841 BC. You can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, there's also another fall of Jerusalem to the Philistines in 743 to 715 BC. Second Chronicles 28 talks about that. A lot of commentators believe this is uh, more in the line of 587 BC when Babylon comes and sacks Jerusalem, which can be found in Second Kings chapter 24 and chapter 25. To me, it really doesn't matter which one we're talking about here. The message is still the same. The message is still true. And so we won't spend too much time trying to decide, dissect which, one, um, which attack on Jerusalem is being highlighted here. Um, but it is important for us to see the message from Obadiah to Edom. Edom is, is enjoying a present time of prosperity. Um, these guys lived in an area of the desert where they were kind of up in the hills. Uh, so they were high and lifted up as a people group geographically, uh, which gave them the advantage with attacking armies because they kind of were kings of the hill. Um, and so they were very protected. And you can see over the years in their protection how they could become haughty and prideful about the fact that, hey, we have constructed a, a society here that cannot be touched by others, right? And they become very self-reliant. Um, but what we see in, in this passage is that God is in control of everything happening. So back in Obadiah, the, the, the chapter begins by God speaking to Edom. And God says, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. God's in control and God is orchestrating these events that are gonna take place where Edom is going to fall. The, these, these other nations, unbeknownst to Edom, they're not aware of this, but God is working and moving and drawing these other nations together in alliance so that they can attack Edom. They're gonna bring judgment upon Edom for the ways that they have treated God's people. And then at the very end of the book, you see a declaration about God and his kingdom. It says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's always worth reminding ourselves that God is seen as the king in control of this entire passage. He's controlling the demise of Edom, 
he's going to establish his rule one day here as we see in verse 21. This disaster is coming upon them. It's coming from God, right? God is seen as the one who is overseeing this. These people groups are gathering together to attack Edom in response to God's anger towards their sin. So we've seen pride, we've seen violence, we've seen compliance. Um, eventually, Edom is going to be invaded. That's what, the, that's what the, the poetry here is saying to us in this book, that Edom is gonna be invaded for their sin. They're gonna be devastated. And even Malachi talks about in uh, Malachi chapter one, that this does happen. Um, and they are devastated to the point of no restoration. It says in Malachi chapter one, verse two, and we'll talk more about what this passage means in depth when we get to Malachi, but it says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's, that's not what you wanna read about when it comes to who you are, right? You don't want this to be true of you. You don't want to read that God is going to devastate you. And then if you try to pick yourself up and say, you know what, we'll rebuild it. We'll, we'll do it again. The Lord says, you can try that, but I'm gonna tear it down. You're the wicked country and, and my anger is towards you forever. Um, God brings his judgment as he promises to in the book of Obadiah. Um, and, and what we see is that God is simply repaying the Edomites for what they've done, right? In verse 15, this isn't, this isn't a tenter, temper tantrum from the Old Testament God that sometimes gets highlighted by critics, right? This isn't God throwing a temper tantrum and saying, I, I hate these people and I'm gonna do something to these people. Right? This is God in a, in a very right, just manner doing what is appropriate. He's a God of righteousness. Right? He is a God of, of justice. And it says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As, I, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So what Edom has done to Judah is now gonna be done to Edom. So the things that we read about here mirror what they had done to contribute to Judah's disaster. It's kind of the reversal of the golden rule that we see in Matthew 7, 12, right? Treat others how you want them to treat you. God says, I'm gonna treat you like you have treated others. This is them reaping what they have been sowing for so long. Edom is seen as the enemy of God, the proud, the oppressor of his people, and what this tells us is that there's no individual and there's no national entity that can escape God's justice by relying on earthly power or material advantage. And, and I would say that it's true this morning. There's a message for all nations that's contained here in the book of Obadiah that if we ever become prideful, if we ever become violent towards others, we should fully expect our nation to fall. We should fully expect that. Right? And, and it's probably not too, too far-fetched to think that we're, we're teetering on that. Right? Thankfully, I believe that we've been a nation throughout the years that um, at least at times has been known as a nation who has helped other nations when, when in need. Um, oftentimes we're criticized for that, and, and, and there's probably a lot of politics there that I'm not even aware of. Right? Um, but there have certainly been times where we as a nation have stepped in to help other nations. But we are certainly a nation that could be described as a prideful nation. Right? And certainly within ourselves, 
We have been a nation that has not done a great job of taking care of each other and valuing each other, right? Instead, we have, we have certainly been known over the years as a nation that has attacked one another within our nation and has devalued each other within our nation. And so this certainly rings true, not just from an individual standpoint that we need to, uh, if, if conviction needs to set in about how we have treated others, that certainly needs to be a fruit of what occurs today through our teaching time. But it's certainly a, an, a, an alarming thing for our nation as a whole, right? And we can pray that our, our national leaders, and we're certainly commanded to pray for our national leaders, that our national leaders would hear this message. Um, not directly from me, they're probably not going to listen to my podcast, um, but that somehow they would come across uh, these passages contained in the, in the Minor Prophets that, man, there is warning here that, that if God would judge a nation in the Old Testament, he will certainly judge a nation today uh, for its prideful arrogance and its mistreatment of others. For us that, that would like to consider ourselves on the right side of relationship with God, there's great promise and hope in this book too. Right, that what God is saying here is that he's going to reverse the fortunes of Judah and Edom because at the time of writing, Judah is the one that has been attacked. Judah is the one that has been in demise and Edom is the one prospering. And what God tells us here is that he's gonna reverse that. In verse 17, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob will become the fire, the house of Joseph, the flame and the house of Esau, the stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So you see this message of restoration, and we've seen that throughout the minor prophets. God um, alerts people about their sin, promises judgment and punishment if things don't change, and he always couples it with restoration and hope for his people, um, that there's something to look forward to for those who follow the lamb, for those who listen to the roar of the lion. Right, those who yield themselves to God in humility, there's always great news attached to these oracles of judgment. All right, let's jump in, and I'm going to show you two points of application this morning to kind of wrap up our time together. I've given you a kind of an overview of this book, and now I want to kind of make it practical because this was big history lesson. But what does that mean today? What does that mean today with all the uncertainty surrounding us? What are we supposed to do with this book that seems maybe ancient to us in the ways that it's written? Uh, maybe it's hard to understand. Uh, Maybe you've never heard of the Edomites before, right? So what does this book mean for us today? Number one, don't be pridefully violent towards others. Don't be pridefully violent towards others. For our kids, don't seek to hurt other people. Now, don't be guilty of reading that and saying, I mean, I've never done anything violent in my life. Like, this has no relevance for me. Like, I thought Adam was about to get relevant, and, and now he's talking about violence, and I've never been known as a violent person. It's a mistake if we think that violence is only uh, in a physical standpoint, right? I want to challenge you that, that we sometimes can be some of the most violent people. What's sad is that people within the church sometimes are some of the most violent people that you'll encounter. Violence with their words, violence with their attitudes, right? The New Testament has so much to say about the ways that we treat others, not necessarily physically, right? Like nobody came to church this morning fearful that they're going to get into a fight, right? Sometimes you do that with middle school, right? Sometimes I've got kids at Trinity that maybe wonder like, is today going to end in a fight? Like I've been having problems with my friends kind of a thing, right? Um, Nobody came to church today thinking that they're going to get into a fight, right? Most of you don't go about your week wondering like, 
somebody going to fight me at the grocery store or somebody going to fight me at work, right? We're not typically worried about physical violence. But how frequently do we encounter um, gossip, slander, uh, the act of tearing each other down in order to promote ourselves, in order to make ourselves feel better, right? Like, like think about like just sitting around, uh, eating dinner with another family, um, just kind of talking and sharing, and all of a sudden maybe the conversation turns towards uh, another particular family, and it becomes very easy to attack that other family to, to criticize their parenting style, uh, to, to criticize who they are, to criticize mistakes that they've made, to criticize their lack of wisdom that they're demonstrating in their choices and decisions. Right? We, can, we can be very violent people, not just to like, non-believers, but even to our own, like to those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not sometimes far-fetched to see violence kind of acting itself out. I think there's a reason why the New Testament writers say so much about this type of behavior, because the New Testament writers realized if left unchecked, this will continue to flush itself out until Jesus comes back, right? Until we're made whole, this is a battle that we're in to protect others from the words that our flesh would love for us to say, right? And, and, and this happens because of pride. And so that's why I kind of attached that pridefully adjective there, or uh, I think it's an adverb. Don't be pridefully violent towards others, right? Don't, don't, be, don't, don't, don't let your pride about yourself distort your understanding of what it means for you to be made in the image of God and for what it means to others to be made in the image of God and for somehow you to start to think that you're better than somebody else, whether it's because of skin color, status, economic status, uh, whatever it may be, that you would not start to think that you're better than somebody else and allow that to shape violent behavior that you exhibit, certainly physically, but verbally as well. Right? Don't be violently, uh, don't be pridefully violent towards others. Look at what Edom did. Number one, Edom was prideful about its status. Right? The, the, the correlation here is that, again, that homeland for Edom is that they are uh, high and, and, and they're protected and there's certainty about their location, right? And that starts to infiltrate their hearts to where become, they become people that view themselves as high. And, and proud and hard and certain. And they felt strong and self-sufficient and independent of anything and anyone else. It says in verse three, the pride of your heart has deceived you. <clears throat> you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See how they're physically high, but spiritually they're viewing themselves as high as well right? They're, they're viewing themselves as this lofty people that's better than Israel, better than Judah, better than the surrounding nations. They've, they've, they've tainted their image. They've perverted their image. They think they're better than other people. Number two, they're prideful about their wisdom. They, they think they know who their friends are. They think they know who their alliances are. They think they know what's going on. But look what it says uh, in verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. So those that you're in fellowship with, those that you're sitting down and eating with, they're gonna turn against you. Your allies are gonna be your enemies. They've, they've deceived you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? Verse nine, your mighty men shall be dismayed. 
right? God is gonna cause Edom to crumble in its pride. Its wisdom is gonna be deceived. He's gonna stifle their wisdom. Those they thought to be friends would become their enemies, just like they had treated Judah. Because that's what Judah would have expected out of Edom, right? As brothers, you should be my ally. As brothers, you should be there to support me. That's certainly what we should expect from other believers, right? Other Christians inside this church and outside this church, right? So as you find yourself in other uh, believing communities, whether that's uh, uh, in a homeschool group where maybe there's some other families that are Christians there, right? If it's, if it's going to a Christian school where there's other believers there, right? If it's just through acquaintances, friendships, hobbies, where you're interacting with other believers, we should fully expect that other believers are gonna be there to support us through thick and thin. Not turn on us, not, not be against us, But remember, God says, Edom, what you've done to others is gonna be done to you. And so when he says that their allies are gonna become their enemies, when when he says that you were eating with your friends and they became those that were deceiving you and setting traps for you, that means Edom had done that previously. Edom had done these things, right? We we read this and we we need to caution ourselves that we would not be these type of people. Somebody who would sit and eat with somebody and then turn around and sit and eat with somebody else and violently attack that person that we met with in fellowship. And we gotta be careful of that. The enemy would want nothing more than for us to tear each other down violently through our words. Number three, prideful about their status, prideful about their wisdom. Therefore, they actively are violent towards Judah as a result. They did violence towards Judah, verse 10 says. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. They mimicked their father Esau and his reaction to Jacob. You'll remember back in Genesis 27, 41, when Esau kind of realizes what Jacob has done, it says that Esau sought to kill his brother, right? I, I want to eliminate my brother. I want to tear him down. I want to destroy him. And sometimes the enemy tempts us to, to have that type of reaction to other people in our life. Maybe not as violently as the wordage here sounds, but the enemy will tempt us to think too highly of ourselves or to think too lowly of ourselves to where the only way to elevate ourselves is to tear other people down, right? What we have to rest in is that God has declared our identity for us. We are created in his image. We do not have to do anything to gain value ourselves. It's been given to us already. It's been given to us already. They attacked those who were fleeing for refuge and turned them over to the enemy. Like it says in verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not, do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. I mean, you've, you've seen movies where this type of thing happens, right? Where, where one group of people thinks that they have found a, a, an aid, have, have found an ally, only to find that ally turn on them when they need them most. And that's what's happening here, right? Judah is fleeing because they're being attacked, maybe by the Babylonians, maybe by the Philistines. They're fleeing their city, looking for refuge, and the Edomites are greeting them on the street, seizing them and turning them back over to the enemy. They're aiding the enemy against their brother. The message for us here is that we should not be pridefully violent towards others in our own life. The question that I want you kind of thinking about is, how might I be guilty of violence towards those I see as a rival rather than a brother. Think about the message in Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. 
right? If, if we're to err and mistakenly think that we're not all equal, we're to err on the side of thinking that others are better than us, right? Jesus models that for us, and Paul talks about that as he continues in Philippians 2, right? Like, have the same mindset as Jesus, who humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? Jesus models this. He models what it looks like to be humble towards those around him. That's the message of Obadiah, is that we're not to see others as rivals, but to see others as brothers and sisters that we're to care for versus attack. So don't be pridefully violent towards others. Number two, don't be pridefully silent towards others. Don't be pridefully silent towards others either. So the first part of the message is is that we're not to be that active violence. Don't Don't be violent in your pride towards other people. But then God also addresses the fact that they were silent in their pride too. That instead of being the aid for Israel, they sat back and watched at times. Um, they sat back and cheered at times. They, they celebrated the demise of their brothers. For our kids, don't fail to help other people. So we don't want to hurt other people, but we also don't want to fail in our help towards other people. Number one, Edom revealed or reveled in the demise of Israel. They took pleasure in the fall of Judah. It says in verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. This isn't the only place that talks about Edom celebrating the fall of their brother. In the book of Psalms, chapter 137, verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare lay it bare down to its foundations, right? That's, that, could be, that could be a new cheer uh, when you're watching a football game. Lay it bare. Lay, uh, that's the picture that Edom is giving here is that they're watching their brothers be attacked and they're cheering for it, right? Lay it bare. Lay it bare. Destroy them. Wipe them out. Get rid of them. These people that were their family at one point. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17 Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Now, this verse takes it a step further because it's talking about your enemy. Not just your brother, but like your enemy, you can't glory in his demise. God says, "Don't don't be rejoicing when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Like that's what was preying on Jonah, right? Jonah wanted to see Nineveh fall. He wanted to be able to rejoice. Says that he left the city and, and looked back in hopes that like God would not be merciful and gracious. Like I want to see my enemy fall. The, the proverb says, "Don't do that, lest it displease the Lord." Not only did they revel in the demise of Israel, they benefited by the demise of Israel. Their violence towards Judah was absent of any mercy. Look at how is the Uh, the punishment is being described here. It says that Edom is going to endure such punishment that if thieves came to you, they plundered by night, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? The idea here is that you're gonna be robbed in such a way where nothing is left. And that's worse than the worst robber, right? 
what, what he's saying here is that even when people break in and steal stuff, they don't take everything. They just take what they want, right? People that have, have experienced break-ins, right? They don't ever come into their house and like everything's gone, right? Sometimes you don't even fully realize that you've, you've been robbed until you start to realize this missing, this missing, this missing. But there's so much that was left behind. Sometimes you're not even sure why. When I got broken into at the um, national championship game with Georgia and Alabama, right? Like just an awful evening watching the Georgia Bulldogs lose to Alabama. I make it all the way back to the Marta station to find that my truck has been broken into. Glass is shattered everywhere, right? I got to drive home in the cold with glass in, in my back, right? Because it's so late at night. But I kind of looking around in the truck and I'm like, nothing was taken. Like, why did you do this? Like nothing, like my Costa sunglasses are in there. My checkbook is in there. Like I've got things that are of value in there. And I was talking to Rob, um, who's in law enforcement. And he said, look, they saw your jacked up truck and they thought you had a gun in here, right? And so they were looking for that. And when they couldn't find your handgun, they left, which I don't carry a handgun, so I didn't have one, right? Even the worst robbers leave things behind, right? Even the grape gatherers would leave grapes behind. They wouldn't take everything. What God is saying is that you are going to be so plundered that nothing is left behind because that's how you treated Judah. You wrecked them in such a way where you devastated them. There was no mercy in your violence towards them. They were passively violent towards Judah as a result of this act of pride. They didn't come to Judah's aid when it was needed. They were held accountable for that. They're held accountable for that. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them because you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything to stop it. Their violence is seen in their compliance with the treatment of others. So the question I want to leave you with here is how might I be guilty of silence towards those in need around me? You know, this goes back to kind of that message I was giving to our students that are sitting in here, right? So our students are are in the midst of this a lot of times, every single day, particularly those that are at that middle school age where there's so much turmoil around identity and, and self-image. And, um, you know, there's such an attack against each other at times trying to jostle for position, right? And sometimes you, you feel like you're just trying to survive. Um, the message that I would want our, our students to, to have in here, and that's why, we, you know, we have our students in here. Other churches maybe would, would have something different going on for our students, but I believe that the message that we're, we're, we're speaking this morning, and it has such relevancy to our students as well, because the message that I would want our students to hear is that when you see others being mistreated, you can't stand by in silence. You can't sit back and just watch it happen. And it may feel like the most uncool thing to do to step in and say, hey, we're not gonna treat this person this way. You may feel like you have no right or no voice because you're not, you're not in the popular crowd or the influential crowd to say something. But man, the message of Obadiah is you don't get to sit back and watch other people mis- be mistreated and not be held accountable for it, right? You're held accountable for it. God steps in and says, Edom, it's not okay for you to be the violent attacker, but it's also not okay for you to sit back in compliance and just watch it happen. He says, I expect you to step in and do something here. This is your brother. Take action. Be, a, be, a, be a, a, a people group of justice and righteousness. Don't let this go on on your watch. And the question that I would ask for us is how might we be guilty of that? Are we silent at times when we see others being mistreated and we don't do anything to stop it? We don't do anything to change it. I'll give you three things that we learned from Obadiah and then we'll go into some application questions. 
Number one, we must learn to trust in God, the giver of great blessings, versus trusting in the blessings themselves. Edom's guilty of this. They, they had been given great blessings from God, great location, great hill country, uh, great protection. But instead of trusting in the, the God who is the giver of those blessings, they trusted in the blessings themselves. And if we're not careful, we become that type of person too. We trust in our job. We trust in our bank account. We trust in our status. We trust in our ability to control things. And we start to trust in the blessings that God has given us versus the, the giver of those blessings. Number two, God takes pride seriously, and he'll humble the proud, especially when our pride affects how we treat other people. And I don't know if you can be prideful and not mistreat other people, so pretty much guarantee that if you're prideful, God's going God's to humble you, and he's going to take it seriously because it oftentimes does affect how we treat other people. We treat ourselves as greater than other people. We treat others as lesser than ourselves. And that fleshes itself out in the way that we treat them. Number three, God cares how his people are treated and will repay the oppressors with his justice. This is the encouraging thing because some of us may be sitting here and we, we, we are the ones who are being mistreated. Right, so I'm giving you this message. Hey, don't be the guy who sits back and watches it happen or don't be the guy who's doing it. But there's a third group of people that, that are the ones who feel like they're the ones that are mistreated. Right, the ones who, who are getting this type of activity towards them. And the, and the hope here is that God cares. God cares when we're mistreated. Um, and, and he doesn't sit back idly. He doesn't, he doesn't dismiss it. He certainly is, is logging it. Right? Like I think, I think God is, is tallying it, and he's keeping track of it, and he promises to bring justice upon it. All right? Okay, so let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for this word from Obadiah this morning. We're so thankful for the message of truth here. <clears throat> God, we are thankful that you're a God who sees and cares about how we are treated. And uh, Lord, we know that because we align ourselves with you, um, you are guaranteed to bring justice and restoration where it needs to happen for us, and so we thank you for that. Um, God, help us to be people who are characterized uh, not by violence, not by complacency, um, but people who uh, come to the aid of others that are in need. Not people who attack others or benefit from others who are in trouble, but people who come to aid those who are in need. God, help us to be known as people like that and help us to, to figure out how that looks in our own context as we talk and discuss here for a few moments. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.